In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, Jesus, in that chapter, gives a series of seven parables, as he was known for in his style of teaching. And all seven of those parables concerned the kingdom of God. It was his teaching on what the kingdom of God is like. And so he gave the parable of the four soils. Some of you are familiar with that and how the seed fell upon different types of soil and how those soils are like human hearts. The next one he told was about the tares and the wheat. That There was a man who sowed good seed in the field, but an enemy came at night and sowed weeds. And the weeds and the wheat grew up together. And the harvester said, Lord, should we go and root out the weeds and The Lord said, no, don't root out the weeds because you might accidentally root up some of the wheat. Just let them grow together until the end. Another one of the seven parables was concerning the mustard seed that is sown in the ground. The smallest of seeds, yet Jesus said it grows into one of the largest of plants, so big that the birds of the air come and lodge in its branches. And the birds, of course, being a symbol or a picture of the enemy, imposters, intruders, those that come in unawares. The next parable that he told concerned a woman who was kneading bread and dumped leaven or yeast into it. And she put just a little bit of yeast into the lump of dough, the large lump, and then kneaded it. And the leaven worked its way through the whole lump of dough. The parable, of course, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And again, leaven being a picture in the Bible of sin, how just a little bit of sin put into a pure lump, will work its way through and corrupt the whole. Another that Jesus told in those seven was the parable of the dragnet. He said that the kingdom of God is like a man who drags a net in the sea seeking to catch fish, but in the process of it, he catches all kinds of other things too, garbage and things from the ground, something's good, something's bad. And he said, at the end of the age, the angels will go through and go through the net and they'll take out what is good and keep it for everlasting, but get rid of those things that were picked up that were a waste and were worthless. There were two other parables, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of greatest price. You can go through and you can read that chapter. This isn't a study on Matthew chapter 13. But Why do I begin that way? Because in five out of seven of those kingdom parables that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, sown into them was the warning that there would be those in his kingdom, in his church, among his people that were imposters, that looked the part, that sounded the part, that could pass off as being God's people, but they weren't God's people. The seed that fell among the ground and the birds came and just ate it up. Or the seed that fell by the rocks where the people just fell away because they couldn't endure the trials. The tares that were sown among the wheat. The birds that lodged in the branches of the mustard seed. The yeast that was infected into the pure lump of unleavened dough. The useless things that were picked up by the dragnet. All of those things were symbolically spoken by Jesus concerning people that would be in our churches and in our midst that would claim the name of Christ, but that would have nothing to do with him in reality. And so we look at the account of history. And we see that even among the 12 apostles, there was Judas. One of the hand-picked men that Jesus chose to carry the torch of the church and be its foundation and its pillars, one of them was an imposter. 
A man who looked the part, but never had the work of the Holy Spirit real in his life. In the early church, we read the account of Simon the sorcerer, who believed, it tells us, at the preaching of Philip. But yet when he saw Peter lay hands on the disciples and the Holy Ghost given to them, he came to Peter and he said, hey, I'll give you money if you teach me how to do that as well. And Peter said, thy money perish with you. I perceive that you're yet in the gall of bitterness and in your sins. Pray God that he forgives the sin of your heart for you will not see the sun for a season. Simon being an imposter, he wasn't a true believer, but yet it says that he believed and he was among the disciples. The Apostle Paul, when he visited the elders in Ephesus for the final time, and he gave to them the last sermon that he would give after spending three years with them and knowing that he would never see them again, he said, take heed unto yourselves and unto the flock of God over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. He said, for I know that after my departure, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And even amongst your own selves will men raise up and they'll draw disciples after themselves, speaking perverse things. Paul said, I have warned you night and day with tears. He knew that there would be those that would come into the church that would profess the name of Christ, but that didn't know him personally. Paul would write to Timothy at the end of his ministry, and he would say that some men's sins are open beforehand, meaning some people are exposed as imposters while they are yet among us. But he said, other men's sins follow after awaiting the judgment. Meaning that there are going to be some people in our midst that are not true believers and we will never know it on this side of eternity. It will be when we get to heaven that we find that out. And so we understand, we are told very clearly in the Bible, that not everyone who simply names the name of Christ, who sits in a church, who even studies, quotes, or uses the Bible is necessarily a true believer in Jesus Christ. And sometimes those people are exposed, but sometimes they are not. And we, by Jesus, are forbidden to try to figure it out and root those people out ourselves. The harvester said, Lord, should we root out the weeds and get rid of them? And Jesus said, no, because you might accidentally damage the wheat. You you don't have the judgment to be able to discern who's really real and who's really not. So leave it alone until the days of harvest. We don't know who they are. However, the Bible tells us on no uncertain terms that what we are to do is that we are to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are truly in the faith. And of that, we have the responsibility to do absolutely. Am I a true believer or am I self-deceived into thinking that because I go to church or because I've learned a few words or because I've done a few things in the name of Christ that therefore my name is written in heaven? Am I really a Christian? Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he, he said, when you take communion, let a man so examine himself and then let him partake. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the apostle Paul said, examine yourselves and see whether or not you be in the faith. And Peter wrote to the church in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, and Peter said, 
Make your calling an election sure. And so we are to absolutely hold ourselves to the light of God's word and take the test. Am I a true believer or is my profession an empty profession? And so the theme of the book of James, as we've turned there, is that of visible faith. Faith being an invisible thing, but yet there are things in my life that give evidence to the fact that my faith is absolutely real. And this segment of the book of James, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and even a little bit beyond that, James is giving to us a series of things that we can look or use or hold up against our own life and ask ourselves the question, am I really a Christian or am I a make-believer? What are we? Are we true or are we not? Belief always affects behavior. What I believe is going to translate into what I do, what I give myself to, the way that I live my life. That's true without exception. And so if I'm a true believer in Jesus Christ, then that's absolutely going to affect my behavior and what my life looks like. So what do my actions testify about what I really believe? And so James is going to give to us four things in our study tonight that we can hold against our own lives and ask ourselves honestly, am I a true believer? Now, he gave us one last week. And the one last week was that if I'm a true believer then the evidence of that is that I'm going to endure the trials that God allows to come into my life and I'm going to resist the temptations that accompany those trials. And so we looked at that last week. Tonight we look at four more beginning in verse 22 and the first one concerns the way that I approach the word of God. And the question that we ask ourselves is, am I a doer of the word or am I a hearer only? Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. There are many people that are hearers of the word. That is, they listen to the Bible, whether it's being read or preached in a sermon like this, or they listen to Christian radio, or maybe they even read the Bible privately in a private time. But the way that they approach the word of God is not with the intent to re respond to what it is that the word of God is telling them, but rather they're approaching it either curiously, what does it say, or superstitiously thinking that there's some magic involved in just giving myself to the time and saying that I did it. Those people are called hearers of the word. And what James is telling us is that it's possible to be a hearer of the word and yet not be a doer of the word. The word doer implies that there's action that follows what I've heard. There's a response to what I've heard, that I'm doing the thing, I'm applying it to my life in, in this whole thing. Now, there are many people that hear that don't do. Jesus said that, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 24 through 27, he gave at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, them that hear the words that I speak, but don't do them, are like those that build their house upon sand with no foundation. And when storms and rains come and the winds beat on the house, the house falls because there's no foundation. But he said, those that hear the word of God and do it are those that build their house on a strong foundation, on the rock. 
And when the storms and the trials come into those lives, those lives will not fall apart. They will stand because they're built upon the rock. And so Jesus said there will be hearers and then there will be doers. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, a very eloquent prophet sent by God to the nation during a time of rebellion. And Ezekiel thought that he was making headway amongst the people because the crowds were increasing when he would preach, when he would speak. And God spoke to Ezekiel concerning the size of the crowds and the audience that was listening to him. And God said this. He said, also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking about you by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak one to another, everyone to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that comes forth from the Lord. You've got to hear this guy. I mean, he can really preach a sermon. He can put his words together and his thoughts together. And he's got a handle on the doctrine of God. And you've got to come and hear the word. And the crowds were increasing. And it says, And they come unto thee as the people come. And they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. They're not devoted to me internally. They want to hear with tickling, itching ears the things that you're saying and the way that you say them. But they have no intent of responding to the things that are being told to them. And lo, you are unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do them not. And when this comes to pass, and lo, it will come, speaking of judgment that was impending upon Israel in his day, then shall they know that a prophet has been among them. And here's what God is saying conclusively to them. He's saying that though they come and hear the word, Yet because their hearts are unaffected and their lives are unchanged, though they have a confidence in sitting in the audience and thinking that because they're hearing the word that everything is okay, when the judgment comes, they will be included in that number. We are not commended because we hear the word of God. We're commended when we respond to the word of God. And so James says, Do not be hearers only, but doers of the word, so that you're not deceiving your own selves. Do you see that there at the end of verse 22, back in James chapter 1? It is a scary thing to realize that it's possible for me to deceive myself. It's interesting, we know deception exists in the world, but oftentimes we think of deception in the context of deception coming from a liar, or deception coming from the devil, or from a salesman, or from someone who wants something from us. But very seldom do we consider that deception, in the strongest form of it, can come from ourselves, that we can be self-deceived. Anybody in here ever want to buy something, a house or a car or something, some significant purchase, and you get consumed in the emotion of acquiring whatever that thing is? And so you begin to block out the negatives in your own mind as to what it might be. Well, yeah, I know it's a used car, and I I know it might have some mechanical problems, and that year was known for a few big ones, but man, that thing is cleaned up nice. And we are really good at deceiving ourselves when we want to, and the danger is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're right with God when in fact we are not. 
So how do I know if I'm self-deceived and I am only a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word? Is there a way that I can actually know the answer to what God sees when he looks at my life? The answer is yes. Notice what he says in verse 23. He says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, then he is like unto a man beholding or looking at his natural face in a mirror. A glass is a mirror. Something that gives the reflection back to us of what is standing before it. For, he says, he beholds himself and then goes his way and straightway, right away, immediately, he forgets what manner of man that he was. So the person who hears the word of God but doesn't do it is just like a person who stands in front of a mirror, observes what he sees, but then walks away and forgets what he sees. And so what's the test? How can I know if I'm a hearer of the word and and not a doer of the, the word? Here's what it is. There's a universal fact that applies to every human being that's alive on the face of the earth. And here's what that fact is. Is that if we are not self-deceived, then we will use the word of God the exact same way that we use a mirror. Now, how does a human life use a mirror? We walk up to a mirror and we have three objectives, whether we consciously are aware of it or not. But when we approach a mirror, we do three things. Number one is a general assessment of our state of being. We want to just quickly make a quick pass and overview as to whether or not we look okay. I used to work down in Manhattan on the sky rises, and oftentimes we would have to wait for a delivery, and so we'd be sitting in the truck on the side of the road, and all of the buildings on the streets are just made of pure glass. They're windows from the sidewalk all the way to the top. And it was an amazing thing to watch that every single person that would walk past a clean glass building they would watch themselves the entire time that they walked by. And they would adjust their posture. They would suck in their gut. You know, they would see, they would go like this. They would, you know, they would use the, the, the thing, you know, because it's just a general assessment. How am I doing? Do I look okay? Am I presentable today? It's a general assessment. The second thing that we do when we stand in front of a mirror is that we look for blemishes. We look for things that are out of place. Did I get all of my breakfast off of, you know, my face after I ate it this morning? Are there any new pimples? Are there any, is there anything that needs to be covered up or anything that's going to be an embarrassment to me when I go and stand out in public today? Are there things on me that shouldn't be on me? And then number three, when we stand in front of a mirror, is that we look for ways to enhance our natural features. And so we want to make ourselves look as good as we possibly can when we go out. And everybody does these things because we want to fix the flaws that are in our lives. That's what we do when we approach a mirror. Now, what James is telling us is that if we're not deceiving ourselves, then when we approach the word of God, we will have the exact same intent. That it won't just be a curious exercise to see what the Bible has to say or what new and curious thing that we can learn about God or the secrets of of life or, or eternity, but rather we approach the word of God with the attitude of, God, I'm coming before that which shows me myself. And Lord, I need you to speak to me concerning the general assessment of how I'm doing. I need to know, Lord, is are the things in my life the way they're supposed to be? Lord, are there things in my life that are flawed? Are there things out of place? 
Are there things that, uh, that, sh- that are there that shouldn't be and things that aren't there that should be? And Lord, are there things that need to be added to my life that are not there right now? Things that would enhance my walk with you, my spiritual effect within this world. And if I'm a doer of the word, then the way that I approach the word of God is that I come before God in his word and I say, God, I'm here because I need to be changed. I'm here, God, because I know I'm not like Christ yet. I'm here, God, because I want to serve you and represent you in the best way that I possibly can. And I want your word to get in my heart and do surgery there and cut away the things that don't belong and add the things that do and circumcise this flesh out of me and make all things new in me and God be relentless in your work within my life. I'm standing before the one who has the power to do all things. The word that doesn't return unto him void. And God, I desire that you would do this work within my life. And the person who is a doer of the word approaches the word with the intent of being fixed. Now, no one walks away from a mirror and forgets what they saw, especially if there's a flaw. You ever get a pimple in a real inconvenient place? Right here, right here. You know what I'm talking about. And you see that thing and you go, oh, no. And here's why you say, oh, no, because you can't do anything about it. Everyone's going to see that thing on your face. And let me ask you a question. Last time you saw something like that on your face, did you walk away from the mirror and forget that it was there? No, you didn't. Every single person, you were like, yeah, uh, so I, uh, yeah, it's good to see you today, you know? And you're like, and then you have to finally, and you're like, yeah, I know. I'm Rudolph, you know? And you're, and you, everything you want to do is because you know that it's there. Can I ask you this? When's the last time you left a Bible study or left a time of personal devotion or left a time in the Word of God where something that was on the page was in direct opposition to something that's in your life and God revealed to you, if you were listening, that there is a big, fat, spiritual, pus-filled, disgusting pimple in the middle of your spiritual face. And yet you could close your Bible or leave church that day and completely forget about it and go on as though it didn't exist at all. If you got a pimple like that, what do you do? First thing you do is you say, can I hide it? Okay, the answer is no. That one's too big. Can't hide it. I can do a little something, but I can't really hide it. And so what's the second thing you do? You say, I need to change my diet. Because, or I need to figure out what it is that I came in contact with that's causing me to break out like this. And you immediately begin to think about the changes that you can make in your life so that you can fix that problem and when it goes away to keep it from coming back again. And James says that our approach and attitude concerning the Word of God, if we are true believers, is going to be the same way. That when the Bible says you shall not covet, or when the Bible says that there's a problem with spending, or when the Bible says that there's an illicit or inordinate affection, or when the Bible says that my devotion to God is weak and my heart is divided, that I do not walk away from the Word and say, oh well, there's nothing I can do about it, I'm going to forget about it and go on with my life. But if I'm a doer of the Word, then God, let my heart be before you and change my life, change my attitudes. I repent of the things that are there. And thus the self-deceived person approaches the Word of God with no mind to see the flaws within their life, to correct what's out of place, or to enhance their spiritual potential. And thus they walk away from the Word without any conviction to change or to be changed at all. 
And so if I'm a true believer, then what is my attitude in my approach to the word of God? Notice what he says in verse 25. He says, but whoso, in contrast to the hearer, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now, he says three things about the word of God in that verse that are essential to the attitude of a doer of the word. First of all, he calls the word of God perfect. My attitude towards the Bible is that God, whatever you say, is absolutely perfect. In Psalm chapter 19, a psalm that is completely dedicated to the Word of God and what it is, it says that the Word of God is perfect, converting the soul. There is no flaw at all in God's Word. And so the attitude of my heart is that the Word of God is perfect. Second of all, he calls it a law. And when he calls it a law here, he's not talking about a a punitive law. Or a jurisprudence type law wherein, okay, well, this is the law of God and I'm to follow this law or I'm to expect certain punishment. That's not the idea behind law in the New Testament and when James uses it here. The idea behind the law that he's talking about is the absolute nature. Like gravity is an absolute. We say the law of gravity. That as long as you're confined in Earth's atmosphere, then what goes up must come what? Down. That's an absolute. It's a law. And the word of God is absolute. What God says is never going to change. What God says he can do, he's never going to be able to not do. And what God says he's turning us into, he's absolutely able to turn us into it. And that's my attitude concerning the law. The word of God is that it is law, that it's absolute what he can do. And then the third mind that we should have towards the word of God is that it is the word that brings liberty. Do you see that word there? He says, whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty. What's the reason that God tells us in his word what our lives are to look like? Is it so that he can bind us with cords and constrain our lives and make us miserable? No, God's desire for us is that we might have life and that we would have it more abundantly. That's his will from the very beginning. And when God seeks to make changes within our lives, those changes are for our good. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Jesus said, whoever continues in my word is my disciple indeed. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you what? Free. That's right. God's intent for our lives is that we would experience freedom in the greatest possible way. And so when we approach the word with a mind to be doers of the word, it isn't that we might be constrained, it's that we might be set free and that we might live the abundant lives that God has promised for us. And if I'm a doer of the word, then that's my attitude towards it. It's perfect, it's absolute, and it sets me free. And James says that if I look into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein, meaning that I don't do it sometimes or partially, but I do it wholly with my whole heart, he says, he, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, that is a doer of what God puts before me to do. If that's repent, it means repent. If it's forgive, it means I forgive. If it means I bear with someone who's annoying, then I bear with that person who's annoying. Whatever it is that God tells me, I do what he says. I don't say, I don't want to, or I have the liberty and grace to not obey this command. He says, no, do it. And he says that this person will be blessed in his deed. Not for his deed. We're not rewarded for our works, but we're blessed in our deed because we're a doer of the word of God.
And so the intentional response to the word of God and obedience to what God says is the evidence that I'm a true believer. If I'm just a hearer and I ignore what God says with my actions later, then it's a sign that I'm self-deceived. The next thing that he says, number two, um, that's a sign of whether or not I'm a true believer or whether I'm an imposter is in verses 26 and 27. And the question is, do I have mastery or control over my tongue? Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. He has an empty religion or an empty claim. He seems to be religious. That is, by all outward external appearances, this person is someone that we would call a Christian. And yet James says that though they seem to be by appearance and by profession Christian, they are not one that controls their tongue. They just have this thing that's just flapping, this four-pound piece of meat that they can't shut the cage. It has its own cage, but they can't do it. You know, and they're just, they just ramble on about everything under the sun. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said this. He said that from the abundance of what's in the heart, the mouth speaks. And so though a person makes a profession of Christ, and though they seem to be religious by all appearances, if they are not, they cannot hide what's truly going on in their heart, and it will ultimately come out of their mouth. Our words are the fruit of what's in our heart. And so what comes out of the mouth indicates what's in the heart. Now, the Bible tells us that as Christians, once we've become born again and we belong to him, that there's certain things that should never come out of our mouth. Just to give you a list without reading you an exhaustive uh, list of scriptures, lies, wrath, corruption, bitterness, malice, filthiness, coarse humor, dirty jokes, complaining, backbiting, stabbing someone in the back, gossip, slander, there's more, the list goes on. These are things that should never be coming out of the mouth of a Christian. Someone who's truly a Christian is going to control these things and keep them from coming out of their mouths. Now, understand that in our fallen nature, these things, all of them, are in us. Just like weed seeds in the soil of the ground. You ever like, you know, have to kind of rototill a garden or, or a section of your yard and you don't put grass seed down and you sow nothing there and it's just plain soil. What comes up without you doing anything? Weeds, that's right. And all of these things are like the weeds of the spirit. And they just come up out of our lives because we're fallen creatures. It just happens. But the true Christian, what the Bible is telling us here, is that we have the means, the Holy Spirit power within us to keep those things in and to not let them out, to not let them out at all in our lives. My wife, she's not here tonight, and so I feel a little bit more at liberty to just speak of her. Don't tell her that I did. But as long as I've known the woman, I've had this doubt as to whether or not she's truly human. (laughs) And, and the reason for that is because she, she just will not speak a negative word. Not about a person, not about a circumstance, not about a situation. Never when she had to get up in the middle of the night with, with a crying baby. She just won't complain. And she, and, and it drives me crazy 
because I don't have that kind of victory like <laughs> over it like she does. And I, I mean, for a lot of years, I just thought like she really was like God had to give me something that was more than human, you know, because I just needed that kind of watching or something like that, you know. And I don't say that to, to elevate her up on a pedestal, but I asked her one time and I said, why is it? You know, like, cause sometimes the situation really just is worthy of, of something. <laughs> you know, you could say something about it. And, and her response to me was this. She just said, she goes, because you know, I just feel like I have the power not to let it out. And by not letting it out, I feel like in some way I'm conquering the situation. She said, it's not that I don't feel negative towards it. It's not that I don't feel the complaint inside or feel the, you know, the, the, the feeling when someone does me wrong or whatever. She says, but I just feel like I have the power to keep it in. And by that, I'm doing what I can to beat it, to knock it down. I thought, man, that is such a good example. And it's exactly what we're called to do as Christians. Just shut your mouth. Don't let it out. I'm preaching to guess who? You know, when I, when I, when I speak these things, uh, and, and all the things. Now the question that, that remains in all this, is this simply preferential in the mind of God, or is this providential? In, in other words, does God tell us not to speak these negative things? Wrath, clamor, malice, backbiting, gossip, complaining, slander, all. Does he do that because he doesn't like it? You know, like our parents? Don't say that. Why? Because I said so. You know, and is that the whole idea that God just doesn't like these things? Is it preferential or is it providential? Is there something more to the keeping of the tongue in God's mind for our good than simply that he doesn't like it? And the answer absolutely is yes. And listen, here's how it works. In as much as what we say comes from what's already inside of our hearts, what we say also becomes what's in our hearts. Do you understand? In other words, if a weed grows up from the ground, it's evidence that there was a weed seed in the ground. That soil has weeds. That's the conclusion that we can come to. But if that weed that blossoms is not allowed then to sow its seed, then you're stopping the progression of negative life. Do you understand? And so, yes, if there's complaining in my heart, if there's backbiting, malice, bitterness, if these things are in me, that's an indication that there's something wrong within my heart. But if I let it out, I'm sowing the same thing back into my life again. And it's going to come forth again in the same measure or more, you always get more back than what you sowed, right? Than it was before. And so when we as Christians employ the power that we have to just, <laughs> what we're doing is that we're stopping the flow of death from being re-sown within our lives again. And James says, listen, if anyone seems to be religious, they claim, they profess that they know Christ, but they don't control their tongue then they're not employing the simplest grace that God gives to every believer, and that is that he has given us the power to not let it out. Would to God that we would receive the exhortation, that we would let the mirror of the word search us in this, and I know that my mouth opens more than it needs to when it comes to these things. So God, change me. Change me on the inside. Make me new. And the whole thing. Notice what it says if I'm, if I'm one who does this. It says that I'm deceiving my own heart. 
I'm deceiving my own heart. And God says that my religion is in vain. On the contrary, there's a positive in verse 27. He says that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So two things so far that have been negatives. That is one, I'm just a hearer of the word. Second, I can't control my tongue. But if I am true, if I am sincere, then there's going to be two things in my life that make me different from everyone else in the world. Number one is going to be selfless giving. Do you know what widows and the fatherless have in common? They can't repay. Is that if you support them, you're doing it hoping for nothing in return because they have nothing in return to give you. And so selfless giving of myself is an evidence that I'm truly saved when there's nothing in it in return for me. The other is spotless living. He says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. That I recognize that this world is contrary to the things of God, to the kingdom of God. And I make it my disciplined effort and intent that I don't want to be spotted or stained or carry the scent that this world leaves upon its people. And so he says, pure religion will give selflessly and will live spotlessly. And he goes on in chapter 2 to give the next. And it deals with the way I look at other people. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. The idea of respect of persons is that I have, I, I make earthly distinctions or I set some people over other people. And the idea is classifying, profiling, categorizing, judging people. Under this banner fall the, the, the um, ideas of racism, class distinctions, moral hierarchies, spiritual worth and giving, assigning spiritual worth to people based upon what I see on the outside. He says, don't have respect of persons. Don't look at some above others. And then he gives an example. He says, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing or the, the rich clothes. And you say, Hunter, it means, it means in King James, it means rich. It doesn't, there's a language thing happening there, you know. He says, and you say unto him, sit here in a good place. That is, you give him a seat. You give him a position is the context because he's a person of influence. He's a person of means. And so therefore, you've judged him worthy to be one that governs and makes decisions within the church. But then you say to the poor man, based upon his poverty and the style and smell of his clothing, that you stand over there. Or sit here under my footstool. I, I, I don't know if we have a place for you in this church right now uh, to serve necessarily, but you can sit and you can sit at the footstool and listen to the Bible, but we really don't have a place for you. He says, if you act this way and you treat people preferentially within the church, he said, are you not then partial or judging in yourselves and you've become judges with evil thoughts? 
He's saying that, listen, if you are one that looks at people and you judge them, you put them into classes, you say that one is spiritually rich, that one's spiritually poor, that one is worth my time, that one is not, this one's, and you begin to just label and brand people based upon what you see in their outward appearance, the sentence that falls upon you is that you're preferential, you're self-exalted, and this comes from evil thoughts. Now, here's the scary thing about this, is that all of that happens in the heart, under the surface, where no one else can see. Meaning that when we do these things, us and God are the only ones that know it. So what does he say concerning this? Verse 5. He says, hearken, my beloved brethren. Listen. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? What James is saying is that, listen, there's absolutely no way for you to accurately assess the spiritual worth of another person based upon what you see in their outward appearance. Notice who's saying this. I mean, it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with God for 30 years and didn't know who he was. If he judged by appearance, he would never know that his brother, you know, he would, he would say, well, there's no possible way. James still would be a heathen, judging by the outward, because the Bible says of Jesus that he had no form or comeliness that we would desire. There was nothing in his outward appearance that said, I'm God, listen to me, follow me. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Unrecognizable. Judas had to betray him with a kiss. There was nothing in his appearance. The Apostle Paul would say to the Corinthian church, he'd say, look, He said, listen, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. I'm not an attractive man. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That my speech was not with wisdom of words, of man's wisdom. The only thing I brought to the table is that I was a man filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Something that could never be assessed based on the outward appearance of what people just look at when they see him on the outside. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. When Samuel, the prophet, was tasked with anointing a king from among uh, Jesse's sons, he saw Eliab, the oldest, and he saw how tall and stout and kingly he was. And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And God rebuked Samuel quickly. And he said, do not look on his outward appearance, nor the size of his stature, for I have refused him. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. And God's choice that day was the youngest of seven who didn't have the physical presence to be at the table with Samuel. His father left him out in the field. And yet he was the one that God looked at and said, that's the heart of a king that I've cultivated, a man after my heart that will righteously govern my people. James says, But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, that you will love your neighbor as yourself, then you do well. Jesus was asked by a Pharisee on an occasion, What is the great and highest command in all of the Scripture? And Jesus said, the greatest command is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is like unto it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Upon these two, Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets. The royal law that encapsulates every other law and command and the will of God is that we love God supremely and that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, the amazing thing is that the Pharisee, when he heard that response that Jesus gave to his question, he wanted to justify himself. And so he said, okay, who's my neighbor? And Jesus then told the parable or the story, we don't know if it was even a parable, of the Good Samaritan. You guys all know the story. And in that story, there was a man who was a Levite, well-versed in Scripture, but wanted nothing to do with a Samaritan. There was a priest, again, man well-versed in Scripture, a servant of God, wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan. And then finally, I'm sorry, it wasn't a Samaritan. It was a Samaritan that came, saw the man, and then he dressed his wounds and put him on his beast. And Jesus said, which man was neighbor unto him that was left by the wayside? And the man said, I'm not going to say Samaritan, because I hate Samaritans. So I'll say, the one that showed him mercy? And Jesus said, yeah. So go thou and do likewise. Let it search us tonight. Are there people that we look down upon? Are there people that we exalt ourselves against? Are there people that we don't have the time of day or make the time of day for because they're beneath us in some way or form? James says, if you fulfill the royal law, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you're become a transgressor of the law. So, let it hurt a little. But he's saying that if this is you, and you're one that sets yourself up against or over someone else, then in God's mind, it's an equivalent offense of adultery or murder. I hope that tonight there's none of us here that thinks we're better than someone else in any way. Because God doesn't look at any one of us as better than anyone else in any way. He saved every one of us with the perfect, even amount of love. We all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have things that we're good at or better than someone else in that area. And they have things that they're better than us in. And God sees the value in the soul of what we are. And there's an equivocal love in the heart of God for every one of us. He says, verse 12, So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. He doesn't say that we will be judged by the law of liberty. Praise God for Jesus. But he says that we're to live and do as though we would be. Let God change us. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices over judgment. And then finally, number four in verses 14 through 26 the fourth test that tells me if I'm real or not deals with the changes in my life since conversion. He says, what does it profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith, so he's professing, but he have not works. And the idea behind works is the external evidence of the internal faith. The things that I do in my life outwardly 
that are a demonstration of the profession of faith that I have made. He says, if I have faith, but I don't have an outward evidence of that faith, can faith save him? If I simply profess it, but I don't live it. And then he gives an example. He says, if a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? And the point of the illustration is simply this, is what good did your words do in helping the person that was destitute and naked? Nothing. Your words meant absolutely nothing because they didn't put clothes or food to this person that was absolutely in need. And so what he's saying here is that if we simply make a profession of faith in Christ, but that profession isn't followed by any change within our life that looks like something, then it's empty. It does nothing. He says, even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead being alone. You have a dead faith if there's no change in your life after making a profession of faith in Christ. Then he anticipates an argument in verse 18. He says, yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, you have faith and I work. You know, I have faith without works and you have works without faith. James says this, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you by my fruit what my faith actually is. And so the fruit will be the action that comes out of my life. He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. But understand this, the devils also believe and they tremble. There's nothing more orthodox than a demon or than Satan himself. Satan believes in Jesus. Satan professes faith in Jesus. He does it every day. He knows Jesus is real. Is the devil going to heaven? Is he saved because he believes? No, there's been no transformation in his heart. He said, but will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? If there's no evidence of my salvation, then there's no salvation. And what James is saying is this. He's saying that it is absolutely impossible that God could come into a life in the person of the Holy Spirit and that life not be affected. And if I profess that God has come into my life and yet there's no change within my life on the other side of God coming into my life, he's saying that that life isn't saved. It's not real. There's been no true conversion. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only or simply by making the profession of faith. Now here's the amazing thing. In Genesis 15, God gave Abraham a promise. Now mark the numbers. I know it's late, but we're almost done. In Genesis 15, God gave a promise. And it says that Abraham believed, that's faith, and that it was accounted unto him for righteousness. 
So Abraham was saved by faith when he believed the promise of God. It was sealed and done at that point. But what James is telling us is that that faith that he professed was fulfilled in chapter 24 when he offered his son Isaac upon the throne. Meaning, he wasn't saved by the work of offering Isaac by the command of God, but rather the offering of Isaac was the evidence that the faith Abraham professed was real. And thus for you and I, if we profess a faith in Jesus Christ, then that's going to look like something within our lives on the other side of that profession. And if we're unaffected or unchanged after the fact of making that profession of faith in him, then that profession is an empty profession. It's not real. It's not living. There must be a change. There must be works. There must be something that comes out of my life on the other side of that. He says, likewise, verse 25, also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way, a Gentile example of the same principle? Abraham, an example of faithful actions. Rahab, an example of a faithful abandonment of all things for the sake of her salvation. He concludes, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead also. If our lives are not changing as a result of our profession of faith, then what the Bible tells you and me is that we have a dead faith. And these things are here for our own examination. And sometimes we need a good examination, don't we? A good look in the mirror to ask the question, am I a tear or am I a wheat? Am I treasure in the dragnet of God's love and for his kingdom and glory's sake? Or am I trash? Am I a professor whom God is invested in and I'm invested in him and there's work being done in my life and I'm cultivating? None of this, none of this speaks of sinless perfection. None of us are going to be perfect until the day we're in glory. But is there change happening in my life? Am I allowing God's word to conform me into the image of Christ day by day? Am I yielding myself to the spirit of God and letting him work in me? Or is it simply an exercise of empty religious deeds and ceremonial words that have no bearing at all upon my life and that aren't contributing to any change within me at all? And if it's that, then I need to know that. That I might say, God, forgive me of it. And Lord, let Christ come into my heart and change my attitude towards the things that I've allowed and justified and excused and make me real in my heart that I might be a Christian in the truest sense that Christ might be formed in me. Listen to me, church. If you're here tonight on a Wednesday night, I know that probably for most of us, I'm preaching to the choir. But I want you to know something. Is that if you die on your way home here tonight, and I hope none of you do, none of us do, and we do your memorial service here in this church on account of that death, I promise you this, that we will say with our mouth from this platform that you believed in Jesus, that you are in a better place, that God chose to take you at this time in his sovereign will and that you are in glory now, though we are mourning, you are rejoicing and that we are happy for you. I promise you, we will say that about you. That doesn't mean it's true because we don't know what God sees. 
And these things are laid out before us in the scripture so that none of us would have a false assurance of standing before him someday and saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many wonderful works? Didn't we even teach in your name? We were there Sunday, Wednesday, Tuesday. We were, we were there. God, we were. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. God wants so much for us. Not just to see us in heaven one day. But the Bible says that he has a plan for our lives. The musicians can come, we're closing, just, you know. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says that he has before ordained good works for us that we should walk in them. God has a purpose for every one of our lives here and now in this earth before we even go to heaven. But do you realize that without faith that purpose will never be realized? See, God is the one who wrote the purpose in in your heart and in your life. And God is the one that's going to reveal and does reveal to us what that purpose is. And probably most of us, we can we can say it whether or not we're living in it or not. I was put on this earth to teach or to create or to sing or to raise a home, to invest my life into children. That's my purpose. That's why I was put in this earth. That's what drives me every day. Most of us know what that is. And only God can bring that purpose one day to pass. But listen, in order for that to happen, the good works that we should walk in them, it requires faith, true faith. Because if we're going to walk in the path that he's laid out before us and be led of his Holy Spirit, it requires obedience. It it requires faithful attention to the things that he lays before us that we might do the things that are there so that we might realize the purpose that he has for us. He said, I'm come to give you life, and that more abundantly. Who doesn't want that? I know that I do. So God, where there needs to be change within my life, make the change. Don't leave me the same. Don't let me come back here next week and be the same person that I am tonight. Don't let me wake up tomorrow, God, the same person that I am when I put my head on the pillow, when I go to sleep. Don't leave me the same year by year. God, work in me, change me. The perfect law of liberty at work within my life. He can. But he's waiting for us to yield. He's waiting for us to say, yes, God. I've been holding this back from you, but no longer, Lord, take all of it. Take all of what I am. I hold nothing back from you. Every door, every cupboard, every drawer, every corner, clean every cobweb. Lord, have my eyes, have my hands, have my feet where they go, have my ambitions, have my actions and duty, have my work ethic. Lord, have all of it. There's nothing he can't do. Nothing he won't do. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you tell us these things because you love us. We thank you that you're for us and not against us. Your word says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And if tonight, Lord, your sword, your perfect surgeon's scalpel, has exposed something in us, a weakness, a flaw, a negligence, oh God, we desire to be changed. We desire to be real. We desire to be Christ-like. Would you take what's before you right now? 
Would you move us and mold us into the center of your will? Would you make us what we cannot make ourselves? That we might walk in your ways. Help us, Father. Be with us by your grace. As we close in this last song tonight, if there's something that God is doing in your heart or in your life and you just feel like there's some way that you want to respond to it, the altar is open. The altar in the Bible was the place you would bring your sacrifice. It speaks of the cross. It's a living symbol of that place called Calvary where 2,000 years ago the blood of Christ, the blood of God that purchased our souls was spilled out on the ground. And he bids us to come to that altar and to lay down there the things that we would have absolved and washed away with his blood. So you're here tonight, perhaps, and there's something in your life that God has put his finger on in a very definite way. If you, in the quiet simplicity of a song, church singing in the background, want to come to the altar and spend your moment, lay it there, and then return to your seat, I pray that you would, that there would be feet to our faith in every way. Let's stand together as we sing.